Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Justin, and earlier in the service, one of our other pastors, Nat, was leading us in our liturgy. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to John chapter 5, or follow along in the bulletin in front of you. We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and it's entitled, That You Might Believe. Um, I wonder how many of you are familiar with the popular commercial that we see around a lot featuring Captain Obvious. You might catch that uh, commercial. It's advertising some hotel company. But the whole I, the premise is that there's this man wearing this, this like officer uniform who states the most obvious things in the room like, this room is really creepy or you shouldn't stay here tonight. It's like, thank you, Captain Obvious. And it's a clever commercial that I'm sure you have seen. And when you read this passage in John chapter 5, it might at first glance think that Jesus is kind of asking a Captain Obvious question to a man. See if you can find it out here in just a minute or two. But this question, I want to argue, is absolutely significant and full of meaning, not only for the man in in the Bible, but also for all of us here this morning. What does this question have to do with us? And what do we learn about Jesus and why he came? So let's look at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which means house of mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going... Another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, took up his bed, and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. That's going to be a really significant word for you to tuck away. That was on the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as, they, as there was a crowd in the place. Okay, now notice there's a change of scenes. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And listen to this. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and I ask that your name would be high and lifted up. That we would see much about the healing that you have come to bring through this miracle. That we would see ourselves in this story. And that we would ultimately see the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my friends uh, who lives in South Carolina had a total uh, shoulder reconstruction surgery. And I remember talking to him about um, having to go to the doctor. And he comes in to see the orthopedist. And he says, the great news is that your shoulder is going to totally be fixed and healed. You're going to be in great shape. And my friend JR said, well, is the surgery going to hurt? And he said, yeah, the surgery is going to hurt. He said, but you know what's going to really hurt is the rehab. He said, it's going to really hurt like the Dickens. It's going to be painful. It's going to be continual. But it will actually provide the healing that you really need. JR at that moment was being summoned to something better. I can make you better, but it is going to be extremely costly. In this situation, Jesus is meeting a man who has been crippled for 38 years. For some reason, we need to know that it's been a really long time, specifically 38 years. We don't know if he was born that way or he uh, received these injuries because of an accident. The point is, this man was sitting by a place called Bethesda with a lot of other lame, blind, and broken people that society doesn't care about. And he had been there for 38 years. If you do a little bit of contextual background, allegedly these pools in Bethesda um, held some sort of pagan ritual, some sort of pagan legend that the uh, underground springs would get stirred up. And that if you were the first person in, into the water, you would be healed of your blindness or your crippledness or your deafness or your dumbness. So that's the scene that we have here with Jesus. It's a strange question that Jesus asked the man. Do you want to be healed? And yet, I think if we're really honest, think about your problems. Think about my problems. Well, you think about your own for, for a second. I'll think about my own. <laughs> we don't have enough time to talk about all of my problems. Think about your problems. Think about your struggles this morning. And the question is still posed to you. Do you want to be healed? With those lifelong struggles, those 38-year struggles, the emotional pain that you're going through, it might require you to go through more pain of actually interacting with the past to get the healing that you need. Maybe it's physical pain for you. Yes, I want to be healed, but I don't know that I'm wanting to put the lifestyle changes in place that I know are necessary. Maybe it's rebellious patterns in your life. We all have them, let's be honest. 
I mean, I want to be healed, but I don't want to cut my right arm off. I don't want to gouge out my right eye. I mean, are you crazy? That's painful. That's hard. Yeah, I don't want to sin. I don't want to be cruel to my people in my household or my coworkers. I don't want to be worldly, but cut off your right arm? Whew. Maybe it's relational pain. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's your marriage. Yeah, I'd like things to improve, but you know what would be great? Can you fix that person first? That would be awesome. So maybe we're not a whole lot different than the man by the pool. It's very easy for us to, like the man in the story, to actually blame shift, to be the victims, to blame circumstances and all of the past and this and that and education, ultimately. That's exactly, I think, what this man was doing in verse 7, where surely he was in a helpless state and we, our hearts should break for that. But in response to the healing, he basically blames his circumstances. What we all need this morning is the same thing that this crippled man received. Even in the face of our excuses and our victim mentalities and the fact that we don't want to really cut deep to bring the kind of healing that we really need, even in that place, Jesus has come to bring mercy. We need the mercy of Jesus that brings true healing. I want us to first see that Jesus' healing welcomes the weak. Jesus' healing welcomes the weak. Look at verse 1. The, uh, the um, evangelist John, the author of this, wants us to understand this is a Sabbath feast. It is a celebration. This is a weekly remembrance and worship and feasting and enjoyment. You go to the temple. You pray together. You spend time together. Imagine those the, the greatest Sundays that you've experienced where you honestly just get outside in nature, you enjoy a good meal, you're not rushing uh, to get through the conversation to another meeting like you are the other six days. Instead, you're just resting and enjoying it. Man, those days are so good, aren't they? Just get a little taste of that. You're with your loved ones, your friends, enjoying a nice meal together. That is what Sabbath is all about. It's a feast but before Jesus can go to the feast to celebrate, he stops off at a place called the House of Mercy. He gets to visit the people who don't get invited and are not welcome at the feast. He visits the invalids, the invalids, at a pool, the blind, the crippled, the deaf, the dumb. And in verse 6, did you catch this? When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to, them, said to him, do you want to be healed? Notice very simply that Jesus cares about the forgotten ones. The Sabbath celebrations are in the temple. But Jesus is not concerned about who's going to be at the party. He's not concerned about who he's going to see. He wants to be concerned with who isn't invited and who isn't welcome at the party. And it's these people by the pool. They should have been in the temple being celebrated. They should have worshiped God. But now because of man-made rules, the Bible never says that the blind and the lame are not welcome in the temple. But they were excluded. They weren't welcomed. 
Jesus cares about the forgotten ones. For hundreds of years, Jewish leaders had made extra laws keeping the crippled from participating. In Leviticus 21, it clearly teaches that those who are lame and crippled cannot hold the office of priest. But to make sure that you don't break that law, we better not let any people who are broken and weak and to come into our house of worship. Do you see how Jesus welcomes the weak? So concerned were the religious leaders with their man-made rules for impurity and seeing the invalids and their ugliness and their smell that the religious leaders made laws to exclude them from worship. Jesus gives three simple commands in verse 8. Did you catch them? Get up, take up your mat, and walk. He heals him in his weakness. He heals him in his self-loathing. He heals him in his superstitious about magic of water. Jesus moves toward weak people. And that's good news for every single one of us this morning, is it not? Whatever healing you need this morning, Jesus moves towards you, even through this service. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has seen a supernatural phenomenon. Healed people heal others. When you have received rich mercy, it leads you to share that mercy in all that you do. For 70 years, this church, Grace Presbyterian Church, has been committed to giving God's healing touch to those in need. With their finances and their emotional needs, their physical needs. Rockbridge County needs to see tangible evidences of the healing touch of Jesus Christ. That's what this miracle is all about. This is why we are here. This is why we have ministries against sex trafficking and we support foster families and the rights of the unborn and food scarcity in our county because Jesus came to meet our spiritual and our felt needs. We desire to offer tangible expressions of God's mercy to other people as we follow in Jesus' footsteps. But not only as a church, all of you as individuals as well, when you leave this place, when I leave this place, do you have a heart who... For those who have not yet been welcomed, I've heard a continual encouraging refrain from many of you the last week. It's been this. Wow, there sure are a lot of new people and new faces. Guess what? I bet they would love to have a cup of coffee with you at Pronto and for you to get to know them. I bet they would love for you to invite them to go on a walk together and to hear their story they need your healing touch and your encouragement. Because we have been healed by Jesus, we can simply offer a conversation, a listening ear. Maybe a guy in your small group you know is struggling. What if in public, at a coffee shop, you physically put your hand on his shoulder and you pray out loud for him? And people think you're a fool. It doesn't matter. Because the healing power of Jesus has changed us and is changing this community. Being available, Jesus goes after people who don't deserve him. He came after us. Can you imagine how this man must have felt in this moment of being healed? 38 years? Can you imagine the high fives and chest bumps he must have received from the, the other, like the blind people and the hurting people that had seen him? He was known in Jerusalem, surely. He was there 38 years. Surely everyone was celebrating him, right? Not everyone. 
insert the religious leaders once again. Jesus welcomes the weak. And that welcome to the weak was very intentional because Jesus, that welcome directly opposed the religious leaders' exclusion. So I want us to see, secondly, Jesus' healing not only welcomes the weak, it also creates confrontation. Returning to those man-made rules, the religious leaders confront the healed man who is carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. And if the religious leaders had any love for God, any love for people, if they actually knew what the Bible said, they would have asked the man, who in the world healed you? This is the greatest news ever. I can't believe your legs work. Praise the Lord. And maybe they're weeping and they're hugging and they're embracing him because they're religious leaders. But instead, what do they say? Who told you to take up your bed? Do you hear the absurdity in that question? Who told you to take up your bed? They're more concerned about the fact that when you're carrying your bed on the Sabbath day, that's considered work than the fact that someone has been healed. Do you catch the absolute absurdity? They don't care about the sufferer, the struggler, the weak and the weary. They care about their man-made rules and protecting them. The fancy word that we use for this is called legalism. Write that word down, legalism. Jesus' healing confronts the legalist. And I hate to break it to you, we are all legalists. Just pick your, pick your, uh, your uh, stump speech. Pick your hot topic. Pick your pet project. We are all legalists in our hearts if we're not really, really mindful Legalism is one of the biggest ways that we obscure Jesus' welcome to the weak. Legalism is too common in our American churches and is characterized by that judgmental spirit that we have for people who are frankly in a different place than us spiritually speaking. Maybe they have a different sin pattern. Maybe they have a struggle that you really can't relate with. Maybe they're experiencing a temptation that you've never experienced. Legalism carries a belittling tone or a cutting glance toward the other. Oftentimes, legalism is manifested with a specific man-made reclassification of sins, some that are bad and some that are really bad. So we might give a pass to the person in our small group or in our teaching fellowship who's struggling with workaholism or False humility, those are, you know, oh, I totally get that. Those are respectable sins. But we'll look with suspicion at the one who's honest enough to say, I struggle with lust every single day and I love Jesus. Ooh, I don't want to get, that's a little messy. I don't want to get into that story. Or the person who confesses, I struggle with gluttony. I can't stop eating and I'm numbing myself with that rather than loving Jesus. Ooh, I can't relate to that. That seems weird. We reclassify levels of sin. When we create a sin hierarchy, we have fallen into the legalism ditch. But also we create righteousness hierarchies too, and it's devilish legalism. When we measure ourselves and others by how much we volunteer at the church, I'm the only one who does anything around here, or how much we give to the church, or how much we work for God, or... How well-behaved our children are. Or how well-behaved our grandchildren are. We become 
legalist by creating righteousness hierarchies. Some of us fall into legalism by thinking it is more biblical, perhaps, to put your kids in public school because that is an opportunity for evangelism. And then our other brothers say, it is more biblical to homeschool and put your kids in Christian school because that way they can be discipled. We all have our proof texts, don't we? It's righteousness hierarchy. Some of us could actually fall into legalism by enshrining one particular political party as the real Christian party. The lie of legalism is that if we are healthy, wealthy, and wise, then we must surely have a leg up on the other people over there, right? Be careful. Behind the evils of legalism is justifying ourselves before God and other people, measuring ourselves against others so that we can get a leg up before God and others. It denies God's welcome to the weak. It denies the mercy that we have received. It denies the grace to the people around us who most need it because we look past them, because they are invalids. They are different. They are the other. And those are the exact people that Jesus would welcome. The religious leaders wanted rules, not grace. They wanted merit, not mercy. They wanted to do it themselves. But there's also a second confrontation that we see. Not only legalism, but I want you to see in verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple, that is the healed man, and said to him, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus meets the man in the temple, which, by the way, is a fantastic place for the healed man to be, worshiping God. And I think sometimes we can confuse Jesus and his kindness and speaking grace and truth with Jesus being a nice guy. Niceness is not the same thing as grace and truth or kindness. Kindness is in the Bible. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Niceness is not. Jesus loves this healed man enough to say, this isn't just about fixed legs. This is about also about a healed heart. This is about not just external changes so that you can walk, but actually walking with God. Your problem is sin. And he is, he is being straightforward with this man who he had just healed. So Jesus Healing not only confronts legalism, it also confronts our crippled hearts. Whatever healing God has brought into your life, whether it's physically, relationally, spiritually, or even emotionally, praise the Lord that he's kept your marriage together. Praise the Lord that your family is reconciled. Praise the Lord that he's provided financially. Praise the Lord that the cancer has been removed. Praise the Lord for all the wonderful things. But Jesus is always driving deeper into our hearts when I talk about heart, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot, Sunday after Sunday. Don't just think Valentine's Day or feelings and emotions. The biblical understanding of the heart is the control center of every part of who you are. It is your thoughts, your dreams, your hopes, your feelings all wrapped together. It is the seat of of your affections and longings and desires. And Jesus will stop at nothing to have all of you and all of me. He wants us to say no, friends, to our sin. He wants us to say no to our cattiness and our touchiness and our insecurity 
and our indiscretions and our careless words and to say yes to righteousness and mercy and love toward people. To pursue holiness out of love for God and others. The most important healing that God brings to every single human being is our internal renewal by the Holy Spirit. One of the key components of this spiritual renewal is called repentance, which is turning away or saying no to that vice, that sin pattern, that destructive behavior, that, um, that gruesome thought. Sin no more, Jesus says. You are healed, so now fight. I think those marching orders are still in order for all of us this morning who would say, I'm trusting in Jesus. You are not a victim of your circumstances. If you are a new creation in Christ, we can, in response to the gospel, fight. Because we are a new creation in Christ. Because we are fully forgiven. We are righteous. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Fight. Say no to those temptations. You are not just sort of tossed left and right. This is why we need small groups. This is why we need more Bible studies. So that we can tell each other to fight. You have been healed. Sin no more. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Repentant people are different people. It's not always obvious to the human eye, but a repentant person sees themselves as the biggest problem. Not blame shifting, but they look inside of their own hearts and see their desperate need for Jesus. God always wants to oppose the yuck and the sin in my heart, and it trusts me, it's in there, and in your heart, so that we are transformed and living, breathing welcomers of God's mercy and grace. So I want us to see that this healing welcomes the weak, but it's also a significant confrontation Thirdly and lastly, I want us to close by considering that Jesus' healing signifies Sabbath rest. Look at uh, verse 20 and 21. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We don't just need a healed humanity. We need a resurrected humanity. Raising the dead. Why would Jesus only heal one man? Because that healing points toward a greater healing. There were lots of crippled and blind and lame people at the pool of House of Mercy. But he chose this one man to point forward toward new creation. To a deeper rest, a deeper healing, a fuller Sabbath. We don't just need fixed legs and fixed relationships and fixed emotions. We need legs and emotions and relationships that will make much of Jesus and his kingdom. Verse 28, which is not printed out. I'm just going to read it to you. Listen to what this says. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you recognize that phrase, the hour? There's a sense that this Sabbath rest, this, this fullness is something that's really delightful. We're excited about not 
having these struggles and disease and death, having the final world, but it, word, but it's also very disturbing because death is the unavoidable freight train. No matter how hard that we are trying to push that back in all of our industries and the workout communities, like our bodies are decaying and death is coming. For sure. Death is that unavoidable freight train and we cannot stop it, but God promises to bring a final and full resurrection one day. This is the irony of John 5. The legalists were so obsessed with man-made rules, they had no room to care for the people who needed that Sabbath rest the most. And yet Jesus is different. Loved by the Father, equal with God himself, and therefore at work on the Sabbath bringing healing to both body and soul. Notice that this healing work is culminated with Jesus' hour. Over and over again, I've said in John's gospel, the hour of glory, Jesus is referring to his moment of crucifixion. In verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28 again, do not marvel for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will remember his voice. Remember that Jesus' crucifixion took place just before Sabbath. Eager to begin their Sabbath feasting, they also made man-made rules, wanting Jesus, this alleged blasphemer, dead and out of the picture. They wanted his body cleared away. They did not want blood or death or anything disgusting to disturb their feasts and their traditions. Like the multitude of invalids, they wanted this poor and weak Galilean Messiah out of sight and out of mind. The confrontation was complete. The Messiah was dead and buried and out of the picture. Now they could get back to their normal lives. Under their nose, the true Sabbath rest was beginning. But it would be incredibly costly. Remember that on the cross of Calvary, intentionally, Jesus wore nothing. Can you imagine the shame and ridicule and humiliation of public crucifixion being nailed to a wood, to two pieces of wood, having nothing to protect you, nothing to cover you, wearing nothing except for one thing. He wore a crown of thorns. Throughout the scriptures, particularly in Genesis, one of the symbols of the curse of the fall is thorns and thistles. Jesus wore the curse of the fall on the cross of Calvary. He wore that curse for you and for me. He wore it for the invalids, for the sick, the lame, the broken, the diseased. He wore it for the strugglers, for the weak, for the people who desperately need rescue. Advent will begin next Sunday. See if this isn't familiar. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus didn't just come to forgive you of your sins so that you can live the life that you've always dreamed of. 
Jesus came to bring you new life and new creation. He came to remove the curse of the fall. He came to take all of the sickness and death and sorrow in on himself to bring new creation. That new creation is happening and growing now. But yet we are still waiting the full reality of that kingdom, the full reality of that new creation as we await Jesus' second advent where he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. A resurrected creation with resurrection bodies like Jesus's. And that will be eternity. No sickness, no, no crippled, no disease, no dementia, no death. This is why we gather every Sunday. To remind ourselves that the curse has been broken. That when Jesus came out of that tomb on resurrection Sunday, nothing could hold him back. And all of us need to be reminded again of that. If you are here this morning and you don't know if you really believe in Jesus, I challenge you, look at the claim that Jesus is making. He says he is equal with God. He did not claim to be a teacher alone. What do you think about that? For those of you like me who want to follow Jesus and struggle, I struggle to love people around me. I want to love in my own power. Look to Jesus. Receive his healing touch again and know that whatever you are struggling with, whatever limp you're bringing into this morning, bring it to Jesus. Bring it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn from your sin and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the work of Christ. I pray that you would help us to follow you closely. I pray that you would enrich us. I pray that you would restore us, that you would renew us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.